Good morning. Why don't you tell the person you're beside, good morning. If they look tired, you can say it loudly. Oh. I think there's actually a proverb about not saying a loud good morning to your neighbor, so sorry I made you do that. Uh, I want to invite you to open up uh, your Bibles to the book of Romans. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, the book of Romans is in the final kind of quarter of the Bible in the New Testament. Romans, uh, the big numbers are called chapters. The little numbers in the Bible are verses. And we're going to be in Romans 6, big number 6. We're actually going to look at all of the verses today. You know, I was, I was at a, a party last night. A friend of mine was kind of doing a house welcoming party. And uh, it's interesting that... I didn't know very many people there. I don't know. Maybe I knew 10 of the 100 people at this party. Maybe maybe 15. And there was like, a, there, he had a band and the music was really loud. And so you could only talk to the person about 18 inches from you. And yet, I, I, I'm a people watcher. And so I'm trying to glean what I can about this crowd of people just by watching them interact and who they are. And it's just interesting that you can learn things about, uh, or at least people try to share things about who they are by what they wear. And so I saw someone wearing an ACDC shirt. And so I was like, okay, right? Stereotype, this person. Someone was wearing uh, like a USA flag shirt. Someone was wearing a shirt that said, let's go Brandon. So I had some, some assumptions of what that person might believe. Um, now, what's it, no, but interesting, though, I was just thinking about, like, we live in a culture right now that uh, who you are and what you're about really matter. Uh, like, who you are would be your identity. What are you about? Like, what causes are you for? And people try in different ways to to communicate in either subtle or not so subtle ways about who they are. You know, they might put it in the, the signature line of their email. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. They might wave something. They might, um, they might try to just drop little phrases to see if you're in the know of the right podcast to listen to or right preacher to follow. And when we come to the, to the book of Romans, it is... It's what we as Christians believe, written by God through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Therefore, it's timeless in significance and always timely for whatever audience. But when I read the book of Romans, what it's helping us do uh, is to actually answer the question, who are we and what are we about? But at a different level than what how culture deals with identity and causes, because in, in modern culture, you can change your identity over six months. Like, it's okay to kind of flip-flop. And it's okay to pick up causes and drop causes. And one of the unique things as you read through uh, the book of Romans is it's describing not occasional identities. It's talking about total transformational identities that are to persist. And it's not about a single cause or a few causes that you add on or pick up. The ultimate cause is of making Jesus Christ your Lord. 
I think in America that term is so hard because we don't even know what Lord means. Even the most powerful person in the country only gets his job for eight years, and that's if he does okay the first four. Right? So to think of the concept of, of someone in, in a permanent position of, of lordship and, and kingship who can, who can speak into every area of my life every single day for the remainder of my life, that's what it means as a Christian. So what, who are we about and what are we for? And that's kind of the whole book of Romans. And along the way, we are, we, are, we are learning about the human problem and the human condition. We're learning about what Christianity says is the, the human hope and uh, the Savior in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, but what I want you to think about, particularly starting last week with uh, Ken's message and the next several weeks, Paul is actually explaining in chapters 5 through 8 about our, our, our change of relationship with different things. Uh, because as, if you're a Christian, you've said, Jesus, you're my Savior, you're my, you're my Lord, you're my King. And so, so last week, Ken explained that we have a new relationship even with our forefather, Adam. <laughs> That there's that what what the first human Adam did was he gave us death, and he is the headwaters of humanity, and therefore he is he has given to us a, a corruption in our body. He's the first to die, the first of many to die. Thanks, Adam. But if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you actually have a different relationship with Adam. Today we're going to talk about primarily what's our relationship with sin now or evil. How does trusting Christ, being united to Christ, how does it change your relationship with sin and evil? And we're going to do two sermons in Romans 7, because I think it's really important. We're going to, the next two Sundays, we're going to talk what's our relationship with the law? Like, truths of God, commands of God, in the Old Testament in particular, but just moving forward. Like, what's our relationship now with the law, because we're connected to Jesus Christ? And then in Romans 8, we're going to talk about what's our relationship now with the Holy Spirit? And we need to understand these things, if you're, particularly if you're a Christian who says, I'm a follower of Christ, and I want to be about his purposes. We need to understand it. What's our relationship to Adam, the sin, to the law, and to the Holy Spirit? And so I just want to actually start where Ken ended last week. Uh, Ken ended last week with the, the last sentence in Romans chapter 5. Would you look at it with me, Romans 5? Uh, the last sentence actually is in the middle of verse 20, and then it goes through 21. This is the Apostle Paul explaining what has happened as you now have a relationship with Jesus. It says, but where sin increased, so we're in, where evil increased in your life or in, the human, in any human life, encountering, entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Ken did a great job talking about Adam brought sin, a certain death, a brokenness to our body. And what Jesus Christ did is he just outdid anything Adam could do. And so, uh, and through Jesus Christ, God can outdo anything you can do. So it, let's say that today you're going to commit 100 points worth of sin. You know, 
Somehow your, your smartphone is going to track 100 points worth of sin. Well, guess what? By the end of the day, if you have trust in Jesus Christ, 110 points of grace for you. Grace wins. Grace always wins. You can't out-sin the grace of God. And so, as soon as you hear that, though, you're going to be like, wait, 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 wait. So, the more sin, evil, wickedness I do, the more grace points I get? Man, I can make God look really good by being really bad. So Paul thinks people have been listening to his letter, and that's kind of a question that's stirring in their mind. Huh, so grace is always going to outperform sin. Grace is always going to be better than evil. No matter what I do, God's going to bless me even more. So we can do whatever we want. And that's the question he has in the following verse, Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace can increase? Uh, or, or maybe something more like this. So does that mean Christians have free reign to sin? Now this question is important for, for us to answer because there are non-Christians looking in. And, and, and they are aware of things happening in the world, and they're saying, they're asking the question, so are you okay with your people doing nasty things to kids because they're going to get forgiven? Non-Christians ask that question. Many people in the name of Christ have done horrific things to children. So are you saying they're just going to get more grace points after that? Is that Okay. Are are, are you okay that your people are just as mean on social media as everyone else and they can just show up on Sunday praying, all good, and we'll start over on Monday? But this is an important question for those inside the church, those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, to those who have committed to following him. What do we say to one another when we see a brother or sister caught in sin, you know, like, hey, don't worry, you'll get more grace points by the end of the day. You'll be forgiven. Don't worry. Um, there's a big fancy term for this in the theological world called antinomianism. You can, the word nomian refers to law. So an antinomian, someone like, there's no law or we're against law. There's no, that, that God somehow gives forgiveness that when you have it, then you have this license for sin and a license for evil. And the question is, is that the Christian message behind the free and full forgiveness of Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection? We need to answer that question. But I also wanted to say this on the front end. That before we hear Paul's resounding no to lawlessness, or to antinomianism. Note well that if you are sharing the good news of Jesus Christ accurately, you should be accused of being an antinomian. 
If you are explaining that all are free and forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, that no one has sinned too much and no one is too far from God, and that today, through the shed blood of Christ alone, you can be right with God, someone in the audience should be like, wait, 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 Matt, I want them to get to work. No. You are saved not by works, by grace alone. So getting accused of being an antinomian is a good thing on occasion. Paul was, and that's why he has to address it. I really appreciate a pastor of years ago named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He wrote this when he was writing on Romans chapter 3. Listen to this insight. He says, if you are ever putting the gospel to another person, you've got a very good test whether you are preaching the gospel in the right way. What's that? Well, let me put it to you like this. If your presentation of the gospel does not expose it to the charge of antinomianism, you are probably not putting it correctly. He goes on to say, what do I mean by that? Just this. The gospel you see comes as the free gift of God, irrespective of what man does. Now, the moment you say a thing like that, you are liable to provoke somebody to say, well, if that is so, it doesn't matter what I do. Very well, says someone else. This is a marvelous doctrine. This go and get drunk, do what you like. The grace of God will put you right. Antinomianism. Lloyd-Jones says, now this doctrine of the scriptures, this justification by faith only, this free grace of God in salvation is always exposed to the charge of antinomianism. Paul was charged with it. He said, you know, some people are saying, that's what I'm preaching. Paul's preaching was charged. So I say it is a very good test of preaching. So let all of us test our preaching, our conversation, our talk to others about the gospel by that particular test. If you don't make people say things like that sometimes, if you're not misunderstood and slanderously reported from the standpoint of antinomianism, it's because you don't believe the gospel truly and you don't preach it truly. So be assured, listener, that salvation is made available to you by grace. And it's only by grace that you can be brought into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Those who, those, you think about this, those who believe in Jesus Christ today, you will not be loved any more today than in a thousand years when you are made perfect in the image of Jesus Christ. That's how secure someone who's trusted in Jesus Christ. It's not based on your measure of holiness. It's based on Christ's death for you. So come sinner to the fount of grace. In old Jim Crow laws, there was a you know, fountain for white people and a fountain for black people. In Christianity, there's one fount, and we all come, and we all drink. And so come and drink. But as you drink, and this is what Paul's going to teach in Romans 6, the good news of the gospel is so sweet that he doesn't only save you from sin's penalty, regardless of your work. When God's grace works in your life, he begins to save you from its power too. The good news is so good that you're justified by faith in the Son of God, and then you're sanctified by faith. You're you're transformed. God makes you new. He sets you free. And so Paul's going to give two answers to this nagging question. Well, should we persist in evil if God's just going to forgive us? 
Should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? And here are his two answers, and we'll dig into them now. It's First, no, because you have been marked by baptism. No, don't persist in evil. You've been marked by baptism. And second, no, 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 because now a new boss rules you. You have a new master. So let's talk about these ideas. Why, should, should a Christian persist in sinning? No. First idea, because baptism has marked you. Let's begin with the, the first four verses of Romans 6. He asks that question, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And Paul says, by no means. Of course not. But then he explains, we are those who have died to sin. How, how could we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Baptism marks you. But it doesn't just mark you as in like you're, you're, you're wet <laughs> marked you. It, it's a special kind of marking. Baptism marks you as dead to your old life and made alive to live a new life. That's what baptism has marked you as. Uh, Baptism signifies a new spiritual reality. I'll say that again. Baptism signifies a new spiritual reality. So what is the new spiritual reality that baptism signifies? It's the idea of a spiritual rebirth. It, It symbolizes, signifies that you have been spiritually made alive. Well, what what does that mean? Well, go back to what it says here. Well, to be made alive, the only way to be made alive is to die with Christ. And, And what happens when a person comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, when someone comes to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for your sins, that he died on the cross, three days later he rose again. When you... And you realize your only hope is to put your trust in him and him alone. You begin to, you become united to him. You, in surrendering your life, you become spiritually connected to him. And in that spiritual connection, you actually die with Christ. There's a spiritual death goes on in your life. And then a spiritual resurrection takes place in your life. Second uh, Corinthians, Paul just says, you become a, a new creation. The old things pass away. New things come. And this is partly why, going back to the introduction, like this is different than just picking a new identity this week. I think tomorrow morning I could go, I'm trying to remember where I'd have to go, but I could go and change my political party affiliation tomorrow. Just like that. But... But when someone trusts in Jesus Christ, really believes in, there's this spiritual union, this connection to him. I am dead. Matt Proctor is dead. 
and he's made alive in connection to Jesus Christ. Um, I appreciate how uh, a 1689 uh, confession of faith describes what baptism is. This is called the London Baptist Confession of Faith. When they ask the question, what is baptism? They answer, baptism is an ordinance, that is a command of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized, so for the person to be baptized, and it's a sign of his or her fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remissions of sins, and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. I mean, do you hear Romans 6, 1 through 4 in this description? We are made alive in Jesus Christ, and we signify that in baptism. Now, I want you to catch this. This 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 work this this practice of baptism has to signify what has actually happened. Uh, this is why in this church and many churches like us, we don't give baptism to people until they have converted or put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so there are some churches, uh, many churches, that will take a small baby and they'll sprinkle water over its head. Uh, some believe that that actually makes them spiritually connected to God. That would be some of the Catholic and Lutheran traditions. Uh, a more Presbyterian thing is it's more like a promise. It's, a, it's an act, almost like a prayer over your child that you're marking their child to one day come to believe. But the practice in the New Testament, what I believe is still alive today, is you don't give the sign until the reality has happened. So until someone has been made spiritually alive, until someone has surrendered their life to God, you don't give them the sign that they have. It's confusing. It, 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 it would... It would not allow them to understand the significance of that decision to to take the mark. Listen to what Paul has to say as he's building this idea out some more in verses 5 through 7. It says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So baptism symbolizes I'm dead. I, uh, I deserve the grave. But it says, in doing that, I'm connected to Jesus Christ, which means I have the hope of a resurrection. But verse 6 goes on to say, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has has died has been set free from sin. So I just want you to imagine right now that you you grew up in a country— that you were a, a, a slave from birth. And every waking moment, someone had control over your decisions of the day and what you had to do and where you had to work and how long you had to work and how much sleep you got and how much food you got. But somehow, through a grand miracle, you were brought out of that country and you're made a new citizen in a new country where you are, you are now free to live under the laws of that land. But under the laws of that land, you have freedom of choice. The way, you get to choose where you want to live and where you want to work. In many ways, baptism is citizenship in a new country. In the old country, you were, you were subject to slavery and to sin and to death, but now you're marked. This is your new citizenship. You can be a new citizen in, in God's kingdom. 
And what water, the, the symbol of water, is you're basically drowning the old man. You're, you're, you're casting your former citizenship away so that you can now be under a new king in a new land and live a new life. Verse 8 goes on and again is describing more and more what this new life with God is supposed to look like. It says, now if we died with Christ, we believe also that we're going to live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has a mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God in the same way. So as Christ died and now lives in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The, notice how many times uh, Paul uses the term consider or in the same way or know. Right? So he's writing to a first century audience made up of different ethnicities, uh, different genders, uh, different backgrounds. And the result of that is there's conflict in that church. There's disagreements. And now he keeps saying to them, I want you to know something. By the way, all of the uh, commands in Romans 6 are in the plural. Right? He's not talking to individuals. He's talking to a whole church. I want you to know this, y'all. Know this. Remember this. You're all baptized. You've all been made nude by Jesus Christ. Don't live in the old way. Don't live as a Jew. Don't live as a Gentile. Don't live as a Roman citizen. Like all those things are so secondary to this new life, this new identity that marks you as bought by Jesus Christ, dead to your sin, alive to God. Basically become who you are. Be who you are. Live out the life that has marked you in baptism because God has made you alive. So just three kind of quick applications under this first point. I mean, the first question is, has God made you alive? Right? Have you experienced the spiritual reality of God uh, convicting you of sin, making you want to die to the old life? To leave that gladly buried in the grave, drowned in the baptismal tank, right? Are you ready? And say, God, forgive me. Receive me. Make me alive. I want to live in your country. I want to be your citizen. For a lot of people, they, we use the term conversion or we took, saving faith. Like, have you had that saving faith encounter with God that you know that he has brought you from death to life? And again, as we said at the beginning, it's a free offer of grace. It can't be based on your performance. It's not based on your performance. It's given through Christ's performance because of his love. Let God make you alive. Now, if God has made you alive, let me ask the question, have you signified that? Have you signed that through baptism? Have you professed your faith and said, I've been bought by the blood of Jesus? The old man has, has drowned, and this new man is alive to God. Baptism is a gift for the believer to just symbolize that, to feel the reality of being cleansed and renewed and brought out of the waters. But guess what? Baptism is a huge gift for those watching because we remember our baptism. We're like, oh, man, God is so amazing that he would save a wretch like me. 
And so if you haven't received baptism, I encourage you to move toward obeying the Lord in that. You can come to a class today. We're going to talk about it. Night 11 o'clock. You maybe can participate in a baptism service on July the 30th. Receive baptism. But to many of you, you have been baptized. And so one of the prominent phrases throughout 2,000 years of Christianity is this. Remember your baptism. Every day. You are a baptized follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were marked And by the way, that mark is less about your commitment to him and more about God's commitment to you. God makes promises to you in baptism. I love you with an everlasting love. Those who die with me will live with me. You are forgiven. You are cleansed. You are set free. You used to be all sorts of things, but that is not who you are. You've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been justified, sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember your baptism. Treasure it. A couple weeks ago, I went to the Voices of Hope concert in this town, and they sing patriarch songs, they honor veterans. And every time I go there, I remember what people have done for our country. And I walk away a little more patriotic. When you remember your baptism, you remember all that Christ has accomplished for you already and all that Christ intends to accomplish at his return. It will stir you that when someone asks the question, well, Christian, are you just going to persist in sin so that grace may abound? You're like, by no means. I'm alive. Why would I go back to the death land of slavery to sin? Press on. Remember your baptism. Receive baptism. Come alive to God. That's Paul's first answer. to Should we persist in evil? No, of course not. You've been marked by baptism. But second idea is, why would you go back when you have a new boss? I stole this from Ken. Thanks, Ken. He mentioned this idea last week in his sermon. He was actually preaching about a third of my sermon. Thanks. If I'm not doing very good today, go back and re-listen to his. He did a very nice job. Uh, But Paul moves from the the significance of baptism to the issue of authority and ownership. Uh, In many ways, in our modern culture, that's what a boss is. They own you for a few hours every day. They do. That's why they can fire you. They own you. They, they, you have a job description. You have, they, in, 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 in the, the, the analogy that Paul uses is, is master and slave, where they owned them a little more, had a little more authority. But the concept works the same. Listen to how Paul describes this idea of master, slave, or boss. He says, no longer, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master. Because you're not under the law, but under grace. Paul says, what what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? He says, by no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. 
But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your hearts the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Okay, so friends, a, a new boss rules you. But let's talk a little bit about your old boss. Uh, we'll call him Mr. Sin. You guys remember Mr. Big? Right. This is Mr. Sin. Now, sin is, uh, is it's the only word potentially in the English language that is worse in the singular than in the plural. Uh, what do I mean by that? Um, so one snake is bad. Two snakes is much, much worse. 30 snakes, really bad. One mortgage weighs you down. Two mortgages really weighs you down. But it doesn't work that way with the theological terms sin and sins, right? Sins, sins refers to the individual transgressions against God in thought, word, or deed. That's what sins are. But sin is worse. Sin is this inherited power and principle that corrupts everything about a human person. It's the root cause of sins. And that's why sin is worse than sins. Sin is what Adam has given you. And that's your old boss. Mr. Sin owned you. Mr. Sin had authority over you. Mr. Sin ruled you like an iron fist. And interesting, we'll talk about this next, the next two weeks. Even God's law didn't have the power to set people right. Even the law couldn't set people right. But Paul says that those who have been, who have trusted in Christ, surrendered to Christ, given their life to God, they have a new boss. And that through the grace of God, you are both transferred and transformed. So, we're transferred out of Mr. Sin's department. Now, he's not your boss anymore. But you've also been transformed. It says there where it talks about in verse 17, you've been transformed. Remember, you're made spiritually alive. That you can now obey from the heart God in a way that you never could before. Because you've been transformed out of sin's power. It actually says you're now a slave of righteousness. Now, I think this is a tough concept because, again, in America, like, people don't think anybody controls them. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you know who the, uh, I'm the boss of me. Have you ever heard that? I'm the boss of me. No one can, no one can tell me what to do. Um, and yet, some of the people who say that, they're controlled by their desire for popularity. Those people who say that they're controlled uh, by their image. Uh, some who say that no one's the boss of me are so con controlled by money, by what the quarterly statements say. Uh, some people are controlled by their kids' success or failure, that their happiness rides or falls on how good of a day their kid had. Everybody has a boss. No one is truly free. And what Paul is saying is, there's really only two choices, though. You're either under sin, which leads to death, 
or you're under grace or under Christ, which leads to life. There's really only two bosses. Now, all those concerns, money, fame, popularity, kids, the different boss is going to teach you how to live and act according to the power that you let have power over you. And that's kind of what Paul says. If you, you Christian, you've been set free, you've been baptized, you've been marked, you've been made alive, but you can go back to the old boss if you want to. You can submit again to sin's lies. You can submit again to sin's power. And it'll bring a lot of heartache, sorrow, despair. But that's not who you are anymore. And so you can now, it says in verse 13, extremely practical. It says, offer your parts to God. Offer your members. Uh, It's talking about your actual body, right? Here's a practice you can try this week. Is to get up in the morning and say, Lord, today I want to give you my mouth. I want to offer this party part, not for wickedness, but for righteousness. Rather than use my lips to look smart, intelligent, or funny, to get ahead and to put others down, I want to use my mouth to build others up, for there is a daily need for encouragement. I want to use my my mouth to speak tenderly to the hurting. I want to offer you, Lord Jesus Christ, my master, I give you my members to do great good. I want to be a slave of righteousness. I don't want to be the man I once was or the woman I once was that used my mouth for wickedness. I want to use it for good. And then start praying about your hands. Lord, today I want to give you my hands. I've used my hands for wickedness. I've used it for self-advancement. I've used it to make, you know, advance my home, advance my career, use all of my strength to get ahead. But today I don't want to be about uh, in control, under the control of Satan that leads to selfishness, fear, and death. Lord, let these hands be used to help others. Maybe I type something for a coworker, or I actually go and I lift and I fix something for a friend, or I, I go and I give my strength to the poor and the needy. Paul is giving this idea. You have this new boss that rules you, so give him your members every day. Submit to him. He wants to lead you. He wants to guide you. In, in another letter, Paul will say something like this. He'll say, you can now say no to ungodliness. And sometimes we read the Bible too metaphorically. Like, literally, let's say no to ungodliness. No, I will not go to those sites ever again. No, I won't have that conversation in that way ever again. And the idea is you can do this because you've been made spiritually alive. You have a new boss that can lead and guide you. Into, into truth, into obedience, into righteousness. Yes, your old boss will keep calling. And we have some old habits built in these bodies that are hard to die. But they can die by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I'd encourage you this week, when you're with a brother or sister Christian, ask them, what old habits has the Lord Jesus Christ helped you kill in your life? And just listen to each other. And there's people in this church who have been freed from all manner of addictions, alcohol, and sexual. But there's people in this church who have been freed from the sin of slander. They've been freed from the sin of control. And we've got to give honor to, to Christ who has, has given us new lives. Let me just 
read how Paul closes this chapter. And he just asks a question. I think it's a good question to ask the next time you're in the midst of temptation. Verse 21 says, What benefit did you reap at that time from the, from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. To the person asking or even knowing, okay, so if I commit this sin, Jesus is just going to forgive me? That's a theological truism. He will. He does. But Paul asks, but do you remember that when you went to those patterns, those practices before, it just led to shame and it led to death? Do you want to go back to that? And then verse 22 is this encouragement. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Before the fall into sin, back into the garden, there was this sweet relationship with God. Adam and Eve walked with God. There was intimacy. What sin did is it ripped that relationship. Through Jesus Christ, that relationship is restored. One day, in heaven, there's going to be this full experience of connection with God. Perfect holiness, perfect peace. What Paul is indicating, though, is you can start tasting that perfect relationship even now. It's not full until heaven. It's not fully right, but you could start walking in holiness now, connected to God, living in peace and, and, and joy. I, it's so hard to even, you know, I, I, these are things I have to say to you and say to me. There is more joy in obedience than any lie of sin. You need to know that. And you have a new boss that would love to rule you graciously into obedience and to holiness. And it's an all a gift of grace. You can't earn it. So, as I close, I just want to warn you that you can go back to an old boss. I mean, the worst boss I ever had was a guy named Adam. Uh, literally. Uh, Adam didn't like me. And it could, I mean, it might have been short guy syndrome. I had about six to eight inches on Adam. Uh, he had just had a really difficult relationship break up, and he was raising kids on his own, and maybe he kind of resented that I, Carrie and I were together. Maybe he resented that I was in grad school, and he, I don't think he had even gone to college. Uh, but we just didn't, things didn't go well. I asked for Sundays off. He said no. He would come in at 9 a.m., he would check in, and then he would go out for breakfast for a few hours. And if I got into a pickle and had to call for help, I would get yelled at for being, yelled at for being incompetent. Uh, it was, I was supposed to work 30 hours a week so that I could do grad school. He scheduled me for 40. Um, I worked really hard, but all I earned was pain and suffering. Friends, this is what life is like under sin. You can work really hard. You might even get some of the things that you think you want. But it actually ends in suffering, sorrow, shame, and death. So who would want to persist in sin 
when you're offered new life with God, a new boss, a new power. And so just let me remind you of the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And it's right there at the end. It says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Father in heaven, I just want to ask for your mercy. Um, Just because someone in this room uh, is probably buried in something they really want freedom from. They don't even know where to turn today. I pray that it would just start in their own heart that they turn to you and ask for freedom. uh, Emancipation from an evil that has really grabbed their heart and their life. I also pray that they would have the courage to share that with a friend, a brother or sister here today. Just say, I need help. Maybe, maybe they go to one of the prayer stations at the end of the service and said, I need you to pray. Uh, but Lord, we believe that you can give people power to live new lives and no longer be slaves of sin. Thank you that's signified in baptism. And it's lived out daily in the new relationship as we submit to our new master and Lord, the wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for all the benefits we have in Christ. And we pray that we would live in those new realities this week. In Jesus' name, amen.